Take your Bible this morning and look back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And you remember that we started that chapter, just to remind you briefly, at the beginning of chapter 5, it was about the healing at the pool on the Sabbath day. You remember there in 5.5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And he had been laid at that pool daily, unable, in verse 6, to get to the water. They believed that there was some magical element in the water that if somebody stepped into it first after the angel had stirred it, they would be healed. And this man couldn't get into the water evidently, when that would take place. And so Jesus, the sick man, answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And then the miracle, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, or literally your mat, and walk. And at once, that man, verse 9, was healed. He took up his bed, and then it says that he walked which was a miracle all by itself, as we noted a few weeks back, that after 38 years of muscle atrophy, this man just picked up that little mallet, the little mat that he was carrying the bed, and walked out. And it's a miracle. But I mentioned a few weeks back, it may be, and might be, the most significant miracle, at least one of them, in all of the New Testament. Now, it's not as though this is different from the other miracles, but what makes the miracle unique is what followed from that and what was stated from that miracle by the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the keys in that, if you look at verse 9, after he walked at the end of 9, it says, now that day was the Sabbath. And of course, the Jewish leaders were very, very, very upset. And then he began to launch, did our Lord, on a, discur- on a kind of an excursion of, of the truthfulness of his person. Of course, that bothered them greatly. Look in chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There is a linchpin of the entire chapter, if you will. They were seeking from this point on, verse 18, to kill him. Because not only did he break the Sabbath code in their thoughts, but he also very clearly made himself equal with God. And it was from that point that Jesus Christ gave or made four bold declarations regarding his equality with God. And they come from his own lips. And he said that he is equal with God in essence in verse 17 and 18. In other words, what the Father does, I do. He said that he's equal with God in action. If you were to look at verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In other words, what the Father does, the Son does. And so he's equal to God in action. And then thirdly, he made this bold declaration that he's equal to God in power. Verse 20 at the end, where it says, Greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And then here's the power. Here's the works. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. 
so also the Son gives life to whom He will. In other words, only God the Father has the prerogative of life and death. That prerogative was given to the Son. So the power that was uh, residing in God the Father now resides in the Son, and not only in giving life, but look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but He's given all judgment to the Son. And so the Father, by divine degree, decree, gave to the Son all judgment. So He is equal with God in power. He can raise the dead. He will raise the dead. We looked at that. He will then, therefore, will Christ be the judge At the end of the world, he is equal in essence with God. This is his identity. These are the words out of his own mouth. And that's why the miracle was so profound in the healing of that man. Not for the miracle's sake, but what it led Jesus Christ to say. And then finally, the fourth bold declaration is that he's equal to God in honor. In fact, look at verse 23. He says there that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so he makes these bold declarations. And it would appear to us, at least at this point in the reading of Scripture, that he was the sole defense or the sole witness of his own defense. He's telling you who he is. He's giving his identity. He's deity. He's God in the flesh. But it's his witness It's his defense. And in the Jewish world, we noted that this would make that testimony invalid, at least the way they looked at it humanly. The Scripture would even say back in the Old Testament that you need the evidence of two or three, what? Witnesses. And so what follows in the text is to answer and to ask this question, what evidence does he give that backs up this claim on who he is? And so the text begins to transition from Christ's own testimony of his deity in verses 17 through 30 to the witnesses that proclaim his deity in verses 31 through 47. So it moves from his testimony to the testimony of these witnesses. Now I want to show you something. Look back in your text at verse 31. He says, watch the language. He said, if I alone bear witness about myself, he said, my testimony is not true. And we talk through that. Of course, his testimony is true. And he said such in John chapter 8. He's just speaking, humanly speaking, to the Jewish people. He says not in verse, he says in 32, there is another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I said that seven different times. Just in verses 31 through 39, Jesus uses the word bear witness. Seven different times, just in 31 through 39. Four different times, he uses a derivative of that word called testimony. So you got bear witness and testimony. In other words, this is courtroom language. And he takes his words into a courtroom scene where witnesses are going to bear testimony. And what flows out of that is he calls on four witnesses, if you will, to take the stand to validate his supernatural claims concerning himself. Four of them. And the last time we were together, we looked at three of them. He called on God the Father as a witness. Look at verse 32. 
There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. That's God the Father. In fact, he doesn't really need a human testimony. God the Father has testified that this is indeed the Son of God. And there's a banner over that primary witness in the Father. But not only did he call the Father as a witness, secondly, he called the Baptist as a witness. Look at verse 33. He said, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. And he cites, secondly there, John the Baptist was a witness to the truth of the identity of Jesus Christ. And then we finish thirdly, that he called on the works of Christ. Look at verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Those works, those miracles, the miracles that we've looked at, even up to this point, attest to His deity. So Jesus makes these declarations. He follows that declaration up with witnesses, and He calls these witnesses, if you will, to the stand to validate His supernatural claim. The witness of the Father, the witness of the Baptist, the witness of His own works. Now look what He says in verse 37. We'll pick up the text. He said, and the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. Stop there just for a second. He comes back to the Father here. He's borne witness about me. But, but the truth is, is as the Father has borne witness about Christ, the Jewish opponents to whom he speaks and to whom he writes to, does John the Apostle, do not affirm his deity. They do not affirm that. Look at verse 37. It says, you have, catch the negative flavor of the text. You have never heard. Verse 37, his form you have never seen. Verse 38, and you do not have the word abiding in you. Verse 38, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Look at verse 40. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 42. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. It says in verse 43, I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. Verse 44. You do not seek the glory that comes only or from the only God. Verse 47. If you do not believe His writing, speaking of Moses, how will you believe my words? The Jewish opponents don't affirm his deity. And so what our Lord's going to do is explain why they do not believe these witnesses. And it's bound up in the fourth witness. So I'm going to look at that with you today and next week. The fourth witness is Scripture. It is the Scripture. In other words, the Scripture... The Word of God testifies as to the identity of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Scripture here, the Old Testament, and certainly the New when you move on through the New, but God has spoken and He's disclosed Himself in the person of Christ inside or in the Scripture. And what Jesus is going to do is He's going to indict these leaders along three lines, at least for our time this morning. And I just want you to know, and 
um, boy, sometimes you come to a text and it's super encouraging. And other times you come to the text and it's super biting. This is a little bit one that bites. You know, I don't, I don't set the tone of the text. The text sets its tone. And so I preach the text. And at this text, Jesus is not trying to conjole any of them, is he? He's not trying to console any of them. He is coming after the Jewish leaders. And at this point, he gave the witness of Scripture, and they've rejected him. You say, well, how so? He gives them three indictments. First, let's look at the text together. He said in verse 37, interesting, he said his voice, his voice of God and of Christ, you have never heard. Now, here he's speaking of the voice of God. And he's saying, you have never heard his voice. Now, just stop there just for a second. Because the Jewish people prided themselves on the fact that some of them heard the voice of God. Now, I don't need to take you into all of this. But in Genesis 7-1, God spoke with Noah. That's what the text says. God said this to Noah. He spoke with Noah. Genesis 7, 1 and following. In Genesis 12, God spoke with Abraham. He said, Abram, this is what I'm telling you. He audibly spoke with him. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was at the burning bush and God spoke with Moses. But he didn't just speak with Moses. He spoke to all of Israel on Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. Exodus chapter 19. And on through the scriptures, he spoke with Samuel. 1 Samuel 3, 4. Is it you, Lord? Speak, O Lord. He spoke in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah. And all through the Old Testament at various times in various ways, God's voice came through these men and through the prophets. But Jesus boldly says here, look at it again in 37. He said, you have never, his voice you have never heard. You say, now why would he say that? Well, he would say that because they've rejected the one that God sent. In fact, would you look back at John 5, 24? Jesus said there, And again, this is all inspired, so we're not just reading the words of man. Every word is inspired. Every word is breathed out by God. Every word is inerrant. There's no errors. It's infallible. But look what he said. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, watch this, what? Hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In other words, if you're going to claim to hear the voice of God, you've got to hear the voice of the one whom God sent in His Son because it's in His Son that are the words of eternal life. In fact, look back just one, two chapters at John chapter 3 in verse 34. Do you remember there again when John was testifying, John the Baptist... There it says, for he whom God has sent utters the what? The words of God. 
He, in other words, as Jesus speaks, God is speaking. When he declares something, it's truth of God. For whatever the Father gave him, he spoke. Look over at John chapter 17, just for a moment. In John chapter 17, here it says, in verse 8, For I have given them to his people, 17.8, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. But here in this text, as you turn back to John chapter 5, he indicts them. He says there in verse 37, as you look back there, that you, his voice, you have never heard. And so, beloved, in this context, one hears the Father's voice only if he has heard the life-giving voice of the Son of God. That's a word from God, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, I've given you the Scripture, but His voice you've never heard because you're rejecting the one whom I sent. In fact, glance back at 525. Jesus said there, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here when the dead will hear, what? The voice of the Son of God. And those who hear it will live. And His voice is likened, you remember, to His word. And those who hear that voice hear and live even now. But he also said, if you look and glance back down, it says in verse 28 of 5, an hour is coming when all, now he's not just talking to believers, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. But he indicts these Jewish leaders because he says, his voice you have not heard. Secondly, look what Jesus says to them. He indicts them in a second area. He says, not only his voice you have never heard, but secondly there in 37, his form you have never seen. Now just stop there for a second, because Scripture tells us that some Jewish people did see his form. If you took the time in Genesis 18, Abraham saw the Lord in the three men at the oaks of Mamre. In other words, those three men appeared And it was a vision of God. We know in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with the visitor, wrestled with the angel of God near Jabbok. In other words, there was an appearance. There was what we call a theophany of God. They saw a form of God. The Lord, it says in Exodus 33, spoke face to face with God. Moses, remember he put him in the backside of the rock that he couldn't see all of them, but he gave him a glimpse of that form. Isaiah in chapter 6 when he was in the temple and he saw, right, the, the train of the robe filling the temple and the cherubim, he saw a form of the Lord. Now they didn't see the essence of God because no one shall see his face and what? Live. But they did see a glimpse of God, but not his fullness. But Jesus says to the Jewish people here, he said, you have never seen his form. You say, well, why not? Because they've never identified the person of Christ. 
That's why. Uh, Look back at John chapter 1. Certainly you remember this truth. In John chapter 1, in verse 14, there where it says, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His, what? Glory. In other words, God's glory was revealed as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, that you have to identify the person of God bound up in the person of His Son. One of my favorite texts in all of the Scripture, look at John 1.18, where it says there very clearly, no one has ever seen God, right, in His fullness. The only God, and then it says, who is at the Father's side, He... Jesus has made him, what? Known. In other words, no one's seen God, but the one who's at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. In other words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Certainly in John 14, 9, have I been with you long enough, Jesus said, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But what Jesus says here is that the Jewish people failed to hear the Lord's words and see his form in the very person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is made in God's image. And so there's an indictment here. There's an indictment here. There's a witness. It's called the scripture, but they're guilty of not hearing his voice and seeing his form. You say, well, why is that, Scott? Well, Theologically, Paul would say of the Jewish people in 2 Corinthians 3.15, it says that a veil covers their hearts. Not their eyes, interesting. A veil covers their hearts and they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's veiled to them. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, there Paul said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, it says there, the image of God. He is the imago Dei of God. That when you see Christ, you see God. He has explained Him. The Word became flesh. They beheld His glory. He is, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the image of God. In Colossians 1.15, speaking of the person of Christ, that He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. He does not have flesh and blood as we have. But speaking of Christ, speaking of His Son, He is the image of the invisible God. That to see Christ is to see God. Hebrews 1.3 says, speaking of Christ, that He is the radiance of the glory of God. That Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. But Jesus says to the Jewish people, he indicts them. Here's the the witness of scripture. But you have neither heard him, nor secondly, have you seen him. And thirdly, look at it back in John chapter, look back at John chapter 5. He says, thirdly, in verse 38, he said, and you... Do not have his word abiding in you. He said in verse 38, For you do not believe the one whom he sent. 
And so they do not abide in his word. The word is not taken up residence in their heart. They're not feeding on the word of God. They're not hearing the word of God. They're not in this text obeying the word of God. And then he, and in fact, it says in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciple. He basically tells these Jewish people on his third indictment that you don't have his word abiding in you. It's not in your hearts. It's not in your spirits. You've become blind. You've become deaf to the person of Christ. I, I do think it's interesting at 38. Do you see that? He said, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. In other words, that truth has come Throughout this text, look in verse 36. He says at the end of 36 that the works bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. And now verse 38, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so they've rejected Christ. Now look at this. He goes on. He tells the Jewish people in verse 39, an amazing scripture. You search the scriptures. He tells these leaders, because you think, watch the language, that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. It's a fascinating text. He tells these Jewish leaders, verse 39, you search the scriptures. Listen, Beloved, they were diligent, meticulous, especially the scribes in the Scripture. You know, the ones who wrote the Word of God and who wrote the manuscript could only tip, you know, take their pen. This is the mic. But they would take their pen and they would dip it in the ink and they would write one word and have to leave the parchment and dip the pen again and look back to the manuscript and then write the next letter. Letter by letter, phrase by phrase, which on one hand is tremendous because you're holding in your hand a Bible that has over 4,500 original, at least Greek manuscripts to it. The Hebrew transmission of the scripture was even more incredible. And so it gives us an accurate record of the copy. But what these men did is they became so focused on the scripture themselves that they missed the person in the scripture the person of Jesus Christ. And so look what he says to them. He actually says that they thought that their dedication to the Scriptures themselves gave them, look what it says in 39, that in them you have eternal life. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it just means that they thought if they were devoted enough to it, it would give them eternal life. And history backs this up. There was a rabbi by the name of Hillel, who affirmed this, and I'm quoting him, that the more one studies of the law, he said, if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. In other words, they actually believe that those who were meticulously devoted to the searching of these scriptures, that in them the scriptures was the possession of eternal life, and they missed the whole plan of salvation. In fact, it's a rather skewed view, isn't it? Listen, beloved, there's a big difference to the in them, in them the scriptures, and the in him, and that's Christ. Look back to John just for a second in John chapter 3, verse 15. Christ is always the direct object of our faith. It says in 3.15, whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. For God so loved the world in 3.16 that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 36 of chapter 3, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. It's only the scriptures that give life. So Jesus says, despite their efforts, they fail to understand that eternal life comes through Christ. He said in verse 39, it is these that bear witness about me. Beloved, Christ is the theme of the scripture. He said in 524, I give eternal life. Kent Hughes, in his, uh, in his commentary, offered an illustration that I, I thought was fair and I I recite to you because I've stood at this place that he spoke about many times, actually. But he said this. He said, imagine standing on the observation floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago. I've been there. I've been on the top of that tower, which at one point was the highest tower in the world. And then after this, the Japanese built a tower and put a big spiral antenna on the top that went higher um, and so they gained that distinction, but they would still say that at least amongst the floors that the Chicago Tower at that time was the largest um, building ever made in the world. And he says, imagine standing on the top floor of that. There's a glass around it. He said, you are overlooking the city. The sun is going down. The lights are coming along Lake Michigan. You are drinking in and caught up in all that you're seeing. And then someone tugs your arm and you turn around to see a man standing next to you. And he says, my, isn't that a wonderful window? Do you see how it is set in steel and how the glass is tinted? Then he unfolds his pocket knife and he begins to scrape the corner um, of the window saying, I'm going to do a chemical analysis of this window and if you will give me your name and phone number, I'll call you and let you know what this window is actually made out of. And Hugh says, of course, we would think that this man was a little strange. He missed the whole purpose of the window. The window, Hughes said, was created to show and to reveal the beauty of the city and the surrounding city. He said, but all he saw was the frame. And likewise, beloved, the Bible is a wonderful window. But as we look through that window, we see the beautiful realities of the person of Christ and God. And and the truth here is this, that if you want to know Christ, you discover him into the scriptures. That's what Jesus is saying. Christ is not known through some mystical experience. He's understood through the revelation of the scripture that when we look into the scripture, not into them, but into him, we see him revealed. In fact, all the scriptures point to Christ. We just take a few minutes with me today and go on a journey with me a little bit in the New Testament. Look back at John chapter 1. I want to just show you this. Some of this will come from John. But it says there, remember when he was, uh, when he found Philip, and then it says in 45, Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, we have found him, here's the interesting part, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I love that. that Philip said that we found the one whom Moses wrote about, whom the law wrote about, or him in the law and the, and the prophets. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Look over at John chapter 5 and verse 46. There, an amazing statement, when Jesus said there, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he, what? He wrote of me. In other words, all the Old Testament is pushing forward to the one who would come, and the one who would come is the person of Jesus Christ. The, the great New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, calls this the, the principle of Christ in the Scripture. He calls it the comprehensive hermeneutical key. He said, by predictive prophecy, by type, by relevatory event, what we call the Old Testament is understood to point to Christ, His ministry, His teaching, His death, and His resurrection. In other words, it's all pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Look in your New Testament, the next chapter, in chapter 7. And I'm just highlighting a few of these. In chapter 7, in verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, and then I'll make statements like this, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's quoting from Isaiah 12, from Ezekiel 47. In other words, out of, out of your trust in him, as the scripture says, that living water is going to flow. Look over at John chapter 13 just for a moment. In John chapter 13, there he says in 13, 18, and this is just a sampling, I am speaking of all of you and I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel up against me. In other words, his whole ministry, his, his whole way of approach to ministry was but the revelation and the fulfilling of the scripture, Psalm 41. Look over in your Bible to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Here he goes into that nearing his death when he was being delivered over He said in 19, verse 24, they said to one another, these were the soldiers, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, for those who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In other words, this was to fulfill the scripture, Psalm 22. In other words, every pointer in the Old Testament was pushing and pointing towards the Savior, Jesus Christ. Look down at at John chapter 19 and verse 28, when it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. He's fulfilling the Scripture of Psalm 69, that what the psalmist wrote about in 69 was pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Look down at John chapter 19 and 36. It says, These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him to whom they have pierced. In other words, it's the fulfillment of Exodus 12, Numbers chapter 19, or Numbers 9. They're all pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, Look in your New Testament back just a little bit in Luke. Look to the end of Luke's gospel. This couldn't be more clear here. Here, when Jesus had been raised, I love this text. In Luke 24, in verse 25, he finally said this, or he said this to the disciples in 24, 25 of Luke. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Interesting. He says, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that good? All the law, all of Moses, all of the prophets was pointing the way to the Savior. Look down at Luke 24 in verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and he adds the Psalms there, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So beloved, listen, there's a witness to the person of Christ in the scriptures. And those scriptures here are pointing to the Old Testament and all that was written point to the Savior in the New Testament. I love how one professor of the Old Testament put it. His name is Ian Duguide. He said, the Old Testament, listen to this, is not primarily, I I like this, a book about ancient history or culture, though it contains many things that are historical and that describe ancient cultures. Generally, he said, the Old Testament is a book about Christ and more specifically about his sufferings and the glories that follow. So, beloved, as you read that scripture, especially the Old Testament, it's pointing to the person of Christ. It is a testimony. So here Jesus is calling and validating and calling to stand the scripture which resonates about his person of all that has been told about him. Go to the book of Acts just for a second. Would you look at this? In the book of Acts, and and this was the, the message of the early church, when they formed at Pentecost and they started to preach statements like this. Have you seen or observed statements like this before? In 3.13 of the book of Acts, the God of Abraham, back to the Old Testament, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Isn't that fascinating? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified the servant Jesus Christ. Look down at 3.18. It says there, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, all the prophets were declaring that Christ would suffer. And at this point in the book of Acts, he had fulfilled that. Look down at Acts chapter 3 and verse 20, 
where he speaks there of the times of refreshing. They may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. In other words, all that took place was spoken by the mouth of these prophets many ages ago. Look down at verse 22. Moses even said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him whatever he tells you. In other words, Moses was telling about a coming prophet that would come. Look at 324. It says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. In other words, they're all writing prophecy about the coming Son of Man who would fulfill all that was said by these prophets in the Old Testament. Look over just for a moment at Acts chapter 7 in verse 52. He says it there. Interestingly, in this way, he says in 7.52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Over and over again, these writers, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, where the old were pointing to Christ, the new was pointing back that this is what, that they, this is what they wrote about. Look all the way to the end of Acts in Acts chapter 26. I just love how Paul worded this in Acts 26 in verse 22. He said there to this day, 26:22, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses you know, said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Oh, this is exactly what they said. Look over finally at Acts 28. Acts 28, it says there in verse 23, when they appointed for him, when they had appointed a day for him, 28, 23, it says they came to him in his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He, that's Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So, beloved, this is just to say that this is a witness. You hold in your hands a witness. And so here he's undergirding your faith. But look Look at the end of chapter, not the end, but chapter 5, verse 40. It's amazing that he says, it's these that bear witness about me. And yet, verse 40, Jesus said to the Jewish people, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. There was a willful rejection of these people to Christ. So, beloved, here it is. Here's four bold declarations, okay? Jesus is equal with God in essence. He's equal with God in action. He's equal with God in, in, in power. He's equal with God in honor. And that's alone enough. But he says, if you're going to go to Jewish witnesses, that there must be two or three witnesses, let me give you four. 
I call on the Father as a witness. I call on the Baptist as a witness. I call on the works of Christ as a witness. And here, I call on Scripture as a witness. And beloved, for us this morning, these witnesses validate, do they not, his supernatural claims concerning himself for this purpose, that you might believe in him. And so that's the point. And I just say, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the person of Christ? You have a faith that's credible. You should, according to 524, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Listen, as we go to the Lord's table, is it not the wonder of wonders that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would die for you? That that one who was prophesied in the Old Testament would be a suffering servant. That one who would come, who would leave the throne room of God, who would come and take on flesh, took on flesh, that you might live unto his glory. And here's what Jesus said. I've given you witness after witness after witness. You know, it's really hard for me this week just to share with you. I've been just full of John chapter 5 and studied last week and this week. And then my wife and I were just taking a vacation day down south and we're walking on the beach and I saw the Jehovah Witnesses there. They were all up, the be- all up and down the beach and... Southern California, and uh, it's really sad because, you know, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he's a God, but they, they don't believe he's the God, and so they don't hold the uniqueness of the person of Christ, and there they were with all their pamphlets and with all their guides, and as I was walking by, my heart was grieved because I think, what do you do with John chapter 5? Jesus himself said, I'm equal with the Father in action. I'm equal with the Father in essence. I'm equal with the Father in power. I'm equal with the Father in honor. The Father has borne witness about me. John the Baptist has borne witness about me. And he has all these witnesses, and the Scripture now bears witness, and yet somehow they say he's less than God. Listen, beloved, I'm telling you by the authority of the Word of God that Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? And the wonder of wonders is, can you believe it? That he died for you. That he died for me. He stepped in your place. He stepped in my place. Your sin that would create a separation from you and God. He steps in. He bears your sin upon the cross that you might be joined to God and be brought near to God. We have a wonderful Savior, do we not?